Well, believe it or not, we're going to finish up Romans tonight. I know, you just can't believe that, right, that we finally get there. And, uh, you know, I, I tell you, it's been a good study. I've enjoyed it very much, and I trust that many of you have, and I know you've expressed that to us and said that uh, you've enjoyed that and your heart's been touched and, and lives have been moved through this uh, book. It's a wonderful book, and we're very thankful for the fact that we've been able to spend time there. Uh, tonight, I just wanted to give a bit of a summary of the book again for one last time, just so that we have this idea of how the book flows and how it goes through before we come to the last chapter and the last few verses. And so as we look at this tonight, then we find that Paul starts off by writing in chapter 1, uh, 1 to 15, really writes an introduction and a greeting. So the way you would write a normal letter, the, he does the same thing, and he writes that to them. When you come to chapter 1 in verses 16 and 17, you come to the theme, and you'll recognize this. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That is the theme of the book of Romans. And when you think about the different portions of it, you realize that that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that people are not righteous and they need to have a relationship with God, and that's what Jesus Christ has provided. And so as you go into the next section then, chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, you come across this idea of condemnation. And so Paul is writing, and he begins to talk about condemnation. And you've got to remember, he's writing to an audience of both Gentiles and Jews. And there would have been some tension in regard to that. Uh, one of the reasons he writes the book is to deal with that and tell them that they need to be treating each other like brothers and sisters in Christ and that they need to realize that they are of the same uh, heritage of Christ and realize, realize that God is certainly moved in that way. And so as you come to this third section of this, you come to condemnation. And condemnation is the idea of telling everybody that they're in need of righteousness. Every person needs that righteousness of God. First of all, he tells the Gentiles that. And I'm, I'm sure as he's writing under the Gentiles, the, the Jews are thinking, ah, uh -huh. you know, as they're reading that portion of the book, they're thinking, ah, uh -huh, that's right, Paul, you give it to them. And, uh, you know, you just tell them that they're out of line. And so he's kind of writing it that way. And then he flips over and he begins to deal with the Jews because the Jews really didn't believe that it was a relationship with Jesus Christ that they needed. They believed that they were fine. They were secure because they had been given the law they had certainly circumcision and also the father was Abraham. So they were depending on those things and say, hey, our heritage, our background, all of these things makes it so we do not need, as it were, a relationship with Christ. And Paul argues that no, every person stands guilty before God, whether it's Gentile or Jew. And then we come to the idea that all are unrighteous. He, he goes and he, he says that in chapter 3, verses 9. He says, there is none righteous, no, not one. He talks about the fact that every person comes to that place of needing Christ, that every one of us is in need of righteousness. Every one of us needs that. If I were to ask the question, how good or how righteous do you have to be to go to heaven? Uh, the answer is, as good as God, as good as God. 
And so when you come to that, then you ask yourself, do I, am I as good as God? And the answer is, of course, is no. None of us are as good as God. None of us meets up to his righteousness. None of us gets there apart from Jesus Christ. And so the conclusion then of that section of condemnation is that every person is in need of a Savior. There is no quick method to get to heaven. There is no trying to figure out some scheme. And if you look down through the history of mankind, uh, what you find there is that uh, God has said this is the way it needs to be done. You need to come through sacrifice. You need to come through my way. And mankind has always said and continues to say even today that I want to do it on my terms. I want to do it my way. I want to earn my way to heaven. I want to get there by being ritual. Or, or being part of a church, whatever it is, this idea of works. And, and Paul comes back and argues that, no, it is grace. And so from there, then you go on into justification. And justification really deals with the provision of God's righteousness. How are we justified before God? The source of righteousness, that being Jesus Christ, we realize that he died for us, paid the penalty of our sin, the penalty that we could not pay because our goodness would not get us there. And so Jesus dies on the cross, pays the penalty of our sin that we can receive him as personal uh, Savior. The example of righteousness, and you find as you go through uh, this idea of Abraham and the example, and uh, um, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness and all of this idea. The blessing of righteousness, the peace that comes into our life. We're now at peace with God. We have a relationship with God, and you find that as you move through chapter 5. And then as you get to the end of chapter 5, you deal with this word called imputation. And the word imputation is really a banking term, and it means to place on one's account. And as we saw this as we went through the book, we saw that what has happened is there have been three great imputations that have taken place or something placed on someone else's account that have taken place down through history. The first one was when Adam sinned, that marred all of us. It was placed on all of our account. Every one of us then stands guilty before God because Adam's sin was passed down to us that we are stand guilty in that way. The second great imputation in history is when your sin and my sin was placed upon Jesus Christ on the cross. He died for the sins of the whole world. And we need to be careful with that because there's people today that would say, oh no, he just died for those that receive him. That's not true. He died for the sins of the whole world, that all of the sins of the world were placed upon him, that every person is put into the place where they can receive a Christ as personal Savior. You go beyond that, the third great imputation is when I receive Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, or you do, righteousness of Christ then is then placed on our account. And so you have uh, the sin of Adam, or the penalty of it at least, placed on our account. Then you have our sin being placed upon Jesus Christ. And the third imputation is when I receive Jesus Christ, his righteousness, coming back to the theme of the book, is placed upon our account so that we stand in a righteous position before God. And at that point, when I receive Jesus Christ, when you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, God no longer looks at you through yourself. He looks at you through Christ. 
He sees the righteousness of Christ when he looks at you. And that's why when I receive Christ as my personal Savior and his righteousness is placed upon my account or your account, the case being in that situation, so that I cannot lose my salvation. And uh, there seems to be some teaching in that today, that you can lose your salvation. And yet the Bible makes it very clear that salvation is once and forever. There is no getting resaved, if I can put it that way. You cannot fall out of salvation because God has placed on your account Jesus' righteousness. Nowhere does it say that God ever pulls that off. Nowhere does it say that you can do something that is so bad that God would remove that. It never says that. The Bible teaches us that whosoever believeth in him shall have eternal life or everlasting life. If you can lose it, how can it be everlasting? Right? And so you find that there is this idea then of the justification. So condemnation, justification, and then sanctification, another big word that, that we kind of use when it comes to Romans. But basically what it means is being separated, to be separated from something and to be separated unto something. It's the same word that we have the word holy. Yeah, the idea of our Bibles then are holy. We call it about the holy Bible. Uh, the, the word Bible really means book. And so you, what you have is holy book or separate book or different than any other book. And that is the description of believers. When believers come to Jesus Christ, we are to be different from the world. And the process of sanctification then is moving us from being the same as the world. They being the same in the world or be conformed to the world, as we find in Romans. Stop being conformed to the world, but be transformed. We ought to be different. There ought to be a significant difference between the way you think and the world thinks. There ought to be a significant difference with your eternal values, where you're going. All of those things ought to be significantly different. That's why the Bible says that you cannot to be equally unequally yoked. And it's not just talking about marriage. We tend to use that one on marriage, but he's not really talking about marriage there. He's talking about whether it's business, whether it's marriage, or any other relationship that we are not to enter because our total values, our eternal perspective, our, our idea of what, who we honor, all of those things are caught up in our relationship with Christ, and that so moves us that there ought to be a change, a significant difference between us and the world. As a matter of fact, if I, if I were to ask you the question, what is the difference between you and the world, and you can't answer that question, well, there's no difference between me. I'm the same. I think the same. I watch the same things. I do the same things. I go the same places. I have the same values, and I would question my salvation. I really would, because there ought to be a significant difference between us and the world. The church ought to be different than the world. Now, we are a business in the sense of we have to operate in good business principles. But we really need to come back to the fact that we are a ministry. And we have people that we're ministering to. And sometimes we make decisions that probably aren't the most brilliant business decisions. But there's times when you just say, we're going to do it because that's the right thing to do. That's different than the way the world thinks. And we need to realize that we need to have a value that's based on biblical principles and then order to move from there. So sanctification, condemnation, justification, sanctification. And then he moves on from there in the book when you get into uh, Romans 9 to 11, and he talks about restoration. 
And in restoration, what he's talking about there is that Israel will once again come back into being the, the nation that God is reaching out to. As you know, in the Old Testament, it was about the Jews. You come into the New Testament and you come to the place where the Messiah is cut off where he's entering into Jerusalem in the week before the crucifixion. He is cut off. The Jews reject Christ. And God doesn't do plan B. He continues on with plan A, which is to reach out to the Gentiles. And you and I are saved today because God has reached out to us uh, in that way. And so there will come a time when the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. I want to talk about future events. There will come a time. And the idea is that God's plan will go back and deal with the Jews. Now we're in the fullness of that time. God actually warns the Gentiles, or pardon me, uh, Paul warns the Gentiles and says if God would cut off the natural branches, that are, how much more would he cut off you which are grafted in? Make sure that you're following after God and serving him and putting him first in your life. But there is a time when the fullness of Gentiles will come in, the rapture will take place, the church will be called out, and we look forward to that day. But it's telling us that after that, during the seven-year tribulation, God is working during the seven-year tribulation for one purpose. There's a number of purposes, but the main purpose that he's working on there is to restore the nation of Israel back to himself. It's referred to as Daniel's 70th week. And during that time, he will work to bring the nation of Israel back to himself, that at the end of the seven-year tribulation, God rescues the nation of Israel and the nation turns back to God. That's what that's all about in that coming day in regards to that. And then you find, as you go through the rest of the book, there's application. And application is where you find uh, things that talk about who we're conformed to, how we're living, how it affects us as a church. Do we love one another? Do we serve one another? How's it affecting us with our gifts? How's it affecting us uh, being as a church working together? And so as he works through that, he brings that whole idea of starting with the fact that we are all lost and moving to the place that God has provided salvation to the place where we now, because of that, have a unity and a oneness of working together as a local church. There, that's Romans. I'm done. <sighs> now let's move on to tonight. Let's finish this up. So Paul comes to the end of Romans chapter 16, and Paul comes to the place where he says, I need to have some final thoughts. Now, if you were sitting, I want you to put yourself in this for a moment. If you were sitting and thinking, what would I write? I've just written, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the most theological, the most wonderful book that we find in our New Testament. It is filled with arguments of godly arguments of why we're saved and, and all of these things. And he's writing unto the Romans. Remember, he's never met them. He knows quite a few of them, but he's never actually met them as a church. And he wants to leave them with some final thoughts. He wants to talk about some things that could really matter. When Paul looks around and writes this, he's thinking about all the churches that he knows about. He's thinking about all the issues that he's dealt with. He's thinking about the apostasy that has taken place. He's thinking about those who have fallen away, and he wants to leave some very important words for the Romans. And this is what he writes. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, 
and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent and to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Ludicus and Jason and Sophisparter, my kinsman. Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quantrus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and to the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul then writes tonight about, or wrote back then, what we're going to read tonight about Paul's warning, Paul's workers, and Paul's wish. Let's pray. Father, I ask your blessing as we look into your word tonight. We're not going to be here a long time tonight, but there's such valuable things here. And I think as he writes under the church at Rome, he realizes how vulnerable they are. And I don't think anything has changed today. I think that there are false doctrine. I think there's apostasy. I think there's churches that are teaching things that are not true. I think, Father, that we are vulnerable to that. It's nice. It sounds good. It sounds wonderful. It sounds great. But the truth of the matter is it's not true. And I think that this warning that we see here tonight could apply to us. And then Paul's workers, he's so thankful for those that have worked so hard for the ministry. And he names them by name because he appreciates them. And then Paul's wish at the end. As we look at this tonight, Father, I pray that it would bring a fitting end to the book of Romans for us. But more than that, Father, it would allow us to have a deeper understanding what Paul would write to us today. Help us to understand that and apply it to our hearts and to our church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I look at this, then, I see Paul's warning. Notice what he says. I appeal to you. He's appealing. He's, he's calling on them. Help them understand, realize. And I think Paul says, kind of has this attitude, well, if I just tell you or warn you, you may not take it seriously. So it's a heartfelt appeal that he has here, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. There's two things that he said you need to watch out for. One's that cause divisions, and I think that that is strictly and completely comes from Satan as he works to people to cause divisions. As a church, we've had some pretty relatively peaceful years, to be honest with you, over the last few years. It's been really good, and I'm sure it was before that. I'm just talking about the ones that I'm familiar with, but it's been very good. But I'll tell you something, Satan's not happy.
happy with that. And he'll do everything he can to tear it down, to drive a wedge, to rip it apart. He'll do all that he can. And if he can get you and your wife arguing or you and your husband arguing, if he can get you and your friend arguing, if you can get our elder board at each other, if he can get our people working in different ministries going at each other, if he can get into our school and get our teachers at each other so that there's no unity, there's no oneness, he couldn't be happier. That's exactly what he wants because you know what begins to happen? We begin to look at each other as the problem instead of looking at sin as the problem and we stop doing the things we need to do. And it begins to drive the ministry to a stop. And so we need to pray for unity. We need to pray for oneness. But there are those who will drive and bring those things about, and I don't think they're doing it by accident. I think that he warns that they ought to be careful about that. The second thing he talks about is that those who create obstacles contrary to the doctrine. The word actually means trips, tripping up is what it means. It's to put an obstacle there that I trip over. And what he's saying there, if, I can, if there's people that could just bring in some kind of an obstacle, something that would cause somebody to stumble, somebody to fall, that that takes place. And so two things he says. Number one, watch out for divisions. If you find that there are people that are just contrary and hard to get along with, then you need to think about this. If you find, secondly, that there's people that are causing obstacles in the local church, then you need to stand up against that and say that's not acceptable. It's not acceptable in that way. And you need to find that there are, unfortunately, there are those that are there. He goes on and describes them. They're contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. I appreciate the fact that we have some long-standing believers in this church. Long-standing believers in this church. Can I challenge you to guard what you believe? To guard what you believe? Because I'll tell you something, every wind of doctrine is going out there today. I hear things like you have to be baptized in order to be saved. I'm sorry, that's not biblical. It is not biblical. It has never been biblical. I hear things like you have to have a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. That is not biblical. You can lose your salvation. That is not biblical. And those things are going on and being told out there, and we need to stand up. And you that have been around here for years, and I'm talking to the right crowd, you know the truth. Stand up for the truth. Don't allow that to come in. Don't allow that to be washed away, the things that we stand on. But the Bible says, Paul says, and makes it clear that there are those who will try to do that. Unfortunately, that's the case. He goes, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. I don't think you can get any clearer than that. Doesn't say sit down with them, have a coffee with them, discuss it, have some time to think about it, have a group meeting about it. Doesn't talk about any of those things. It says avoid them. Why? Because it's amazing how quick and how easily we are swayed. It really is. We are not to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine, but unfortunately, it's the, it's the time that we spend in the Word of God prepares us for that, and we don't spend time in the Word of God like we need to. We need to be there in the Word of God. And I'm calling on you as a church, as older folks in our church, to stand up for what's right, to stand up for what needs to be there. I'm not talking about methods. 
And if you think you've got that mixed up, then there's something wrong with you because I've never been a promoter of methods. It's not methodology. It's bibliology that we need to stand for. It's doctrine that we need to stand for. And just because Pastor Dave does something different than I do doesn't mean he's wrong unless he preaches something like, you know, Jesus wasn't born of a virgin or something. Then give me a call. I'll come fix that problem. But, I mean, you know, but he'll never preach that, I promise you. One of the things I promote Pastor Dave because he's a godly man who holds to the word of God. And I believe he's, we're in good hands as a church as we move forward. I really honestly believe that. But, you know, there will be methodology that will be different. Don't make a fuss over that. Get over it. If it's a type of carpet, color of carpet you don't like, too bad. That's the way it is. I'm sorry. That's the way it is. I'm, no, I'm not making any friends, but I don't have to. I just have to tell you what's true. And that's my goal. That's my purpose, that there'll be different methods. But as long as he stands on the word of God, then stand behind him, pray for him, encourage him, strengthen him in regards to that. Avoid them. I want to tell you something. If you're doing something that puts you in connection with somebody who does not teach the word of God, I'm not saying it. The Bible is saying it, making it clear, avoid them because it's not right. Number uh, going on from there, he says, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetite. Now it's describing what these people are like. It sounds good. It looks good. Man, it must be good because it just makes me feel good. Whatever, he makes it very clear here. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. Be aware of them. Look out for them. But their own appetites, in other words, not just food, that's what he's talking about, what they want, their selfishness, their pride, all of those things. And by smooth talking and flattery, boy, I tell you, I see some of that going on today. Some smooth talking and flattery, it sounds good, it looks good, they even flatter me because it just, it just helps their cause. They, de uh, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, when we think of the word naive, we're thinking about somebody who's maybe not too smart or maybe you see it that way. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the innocent, those who don't know any better. He's not, he's not insulting people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying somebody who may not know better. He said you need to watch out for smooth talkers and flattery because they're deceiving the hearts of the innocent deceiving the hearts in that way. And as a church, we need to stand for what's right. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. He says, I know that you're obedient, but I want to give you this warning. I want you to understand that, that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Be on the guard. Be watching. Understand what's evil understands what's wise. And the word compromise when it comes to doctrine is not acceptable. It is not acceptable. We get pressured, oh, well, you know, everybody ought to just get along. No, it's the doctrine of the Bible. It's what holds the church. And the reason, I'll tell you right now, the reason True Life Church stands here today slash Rossi Baptist Church is because we still preach the word of God. We believe what the Bible says. We hold to that. We're not backing down on that. We're not apologizing for that. And we're going to teach that. And that's the way it is. And God will honor that. The minute you step away from this, the minute you decide that, hey, it's just, well, it kind of contains the Word of God. The minute you decide that, hey, it's not what you know, we really want to have as our basis or faith or practice, is the minute you're on the downward slide and you won't be here in 25 years. 
I know, I'm not making any friends. I'm not trying to. But I feel called to warn you to stand up for what's right. I need to do that. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Aren't you glad? We're not going to always fight with this, folks. <laughs> the truth is going to come out. God's going to come. Jesus Christ is going to come back. We're going to get called out. And he says, but Paul warns them because it's so important. He makes it clear. And then moving on from there, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I love how he does that. It's kind of like, uh, you know, I'm just going to beat up on you a little bit and warn you a little bit, but boy, I love you. <laughs> I love you, folks. I really do. I love this church. I have a passion for this church, and nothing would break my heart more than to see something sneak in that's evil, that'll cause divisions, that'll cause it to to just have something that would cause somebody to stumble. Stand for what's right. So that's Paul's warning. The second thing you see is Paul's workers. And the reason he lists them here, as we saw last week, is Paul loves these people. I have the greatest team of people in the world. I do. I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't say enough about it. I try not to, you know, embarrass them. Or, but man, God has blessed us tremendously. Listen to what Paul says here. Timothy, my fellow worker, <laughs> greets you. He's so humble about that. He had built into Timothy. He had trained Timothy. Timothy was going to pastor the church at Ephesus. Timothy was going to be used mightily of God. He was the guy that Paul was trusting to take the gospel forward. And he just, he's just loves Timothy, and he just makes it clear. Lucius, the idea is it's probably actually the word Luke the one who wrote Acts in the book of Luke. It's another way of saying that same name. And so he's talking about Luke in regards to that. Jason is, is probably one of the first converts at Thessalonica. So, so Sisperter is probably one of the first convicts at, uh, or, uh, converts that took place at Corinth. Uh, these are people that meant a lot to him. These are people that he had watched and used, and they had used uh, in a wonderful way for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tertus, Ter, uh, uh, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. You say, what do you mean? I thought Paul wrote it. Well, he's just his secretary, and Paul is dictating. Oftentimes, you, you think that maybe Paul's thorn in the flesh was his eyes, and so he used a secretary to write, and Paul would dictate this, and he would write it, and now he wants to say hi as well. Gaius, who is host to me. Gaius was one of the first converts as well in that sense. And, and he's hosting Paul. Paul's staying with him to the whole church greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, the impact of the gospel had gone into the government. God had used it to reach people for Christ. And my brother Quarantus greets you. And so there's this whole team of people that Paul has worked with and traveled with. And he deems them to be very, very wonderful. I have been given the great privilege of having a great team over these last, uh, how many years it is, I have no idea. Seven years I've been pastor or something. I don't keep track of that kind of stuff. But would you do me a favor? Would you support them? Would you stand behind them? Would you love them? Would you encourage them? That's what they need. I commit them to you. I ask that God would bless them and use them mightily in the days ahead I don't believe for a moment that our best days are behind, folks. I believe our best days are ahead. I really do. I believe that God is going to do great things through this church, but they need you to stand. 
and encourage and strengthen and support and all of that. You don't know what a word of encouragement does. You preach your heart out and you think, boy, what a bomb that was. And somebody walks up to you and simply says, thank you. They may not even enjoy the message. I don't know. I don't, may not even have touched, but they just said thank you for the work and the effort and the time that's gone in. And just support, encourage, encouraging words. It's so easy to jump on the bandwagon of negativity. It's so easy to jump on that and to tear down and be a part of that. Why don't you be different? Why don't you be sanctified and jump on the bandwagon of encouragement and helping in all of these things? And so you see Paul's workers. The third thing you see here is Paul's wish. Now, this is a doxology. This is a wind-up of the book. This is wonderful, but there's a couple things that really make me think. Paul's wish. Now, to him who is able to what? Strengthen you. Strengthen you. I want to encourage you as a church in the days ahead to realize where your strength comes from. I can probably can't think of anything that I could say better than that or more than that. Realize where your strength comes from. Realize that in and of yourself you can accomplish nothing. You can't build churches in India. You can't support missionaries. You can't build a great Christian school. You, can't, you have great ministries. You can't do any of those things if it's not from God. And if the church can get to one place in their mind, is that without God, we can not do anything. If we can get to that spot and we can remain that spot on our knees, reaching out to the Almighty and asking him to bless according to the power that comes from the gospel, and that's the idea of the death, the burial, the resurrection, the power of raising Christ, according to the preaching of Christ, if we can understand all of those things, and understand that God has given us this great responsibility and allowed us to be part of taking the gospel. What a great privilege that is. And it goes on and it says great things. He says this, made known to all nations. That's what we're talking about tonight in India. According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. God works in our hearts. God works in our life to reach the nations for God that people could be saved the obedience of faith, and then I love this, to the, not one of the, but the only wise God. Why would we look for anything else? Why would we look at our own wisdom? Why would we look at our own strength? When you think about this, the creator of all of the earth, the creator of you and me, the creator of this church, says, hey, I'm available. I want to give you strength. I want to give you what you need. I want to be here for you. I want to allow my wisdom to be your wisdom. I want to encourage and strengthen you in that way. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. As Paul looks at this book, and he thinks his way back through it as he's coming to an end, he realizes that it's all about God. It's not about us. It's not about how wise we are, how smart we are. It's not about our strength or any of those things. Paul comes to the point where he says, when I look at where I was, when I look at where I am, when I look at where I'm going to go, it is all completely centered on Christ. Decide today to put your life on Christ.
Decide today to put your life and your strength from him. Decide today that Christ is the one you want to follow after. And then you too will lift your voice and say to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Well, as I bring this to the end tonight, I thought about what would I say? My warning, it's not far, folks. You're one step, one bad decision away from going down the wrong road. Stand firm, stand strong. Keep this as the center of your faith and practice. Don't allow anything else to take priority over the word of God. Not fancy preaching, not stories, not somebody's great idea. This is it. This is what God says he will bless. Nothing else. This is the only thing. You think about that. There's only two things that are going to last when this world's gone. One is people and the word of God. So use the word of God to reach people. That's my thought tonight. Second thing is my wife and I promise we'll be praying for you. <laughs> we're, we're going, I tell you. You have to be obedient. You have to go. But our heart is with you. And we will pray for you. We will just be there for you. We will be fellow workers with you and lifting you up. And number three, remember where your strength comes from. If there's any blessing, if there's anything of any value, remember it comes from God. You say, how do, how do we keep there? I'll tell you how. By simply remembering to praise the Lord for what he has done. That's what keeps us centered. That keeps me from saying, look what I have done. It keeps me focused on what he has done and what he's going to do. God's not going to share his glory. He won't. Learn to give back to him, praise him, follow him, and he'll pour out a blessing that is exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or think. Father, I thank you for your word tonight. And I thank you for this great book. And Father, I just thank you for this church. My heart's here, but you've called us to go elsewhere for a reason, for a purpose. I don't understand, but that's okay. I don't have to understand. There's nothing that says I have to. And I thank you for the peace that you've given Brenda and I as we go. My heart's desire, Lord, is that this church would stand strong for you. We are being told today that the values that the Word of God has, some of the values that are there are old, they're outdated, they're ancient. We should move away from those. I pray for Pastor Dave, Lord, who will be primarily responsible to stand on the Word of God. I pray for him. You'd strengthen him, encourage him, help him to stand strong against the wind of the tide. Help them to stand up for what's right. And Father, no matter what anybody thinks, help them to stand there, Father, and give them the courage to do so. I believe he's going to be a great pastor. I, and then, Father, I pray that people get behind him and they pray for him and they encourage him and strengthen him because he's going to need that. It's not easy. It's really tough. And I pray, Father, that you just bless this church and help it to realize that its strength comes from you. Oh, Father, the minute we get on ourselves... How foolish that is. When I am weak, then am I strong. Why can't we keep that in mind? Remove pride, remove selfishness. Help us to realize it's the power of the gospel that changes lives. It's the power of the gospel that keeps us centered. It's the power of the gospel 
that causes us to do effective ministry for you. Bless this church. Bless these people. I love them, and I pray your blessing on them. In Jesus' name, amen.